You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Colonel Retired Liam Collins. He's been on the show before, a good friend, a travel partner, a research partner, but more importantly, the founding director of the Modern War Institute and really why I I have been able to do the things I have done. Liam, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be back. All right. So today we're going to talk about something that was that we researched um, on our last trip. We had the honor to interview multiple people involved from different angles of this operation, let's call it, mission, although it's a series of missions. This operation to resupply the besieged forces in the city of Mariupol, Ukraine. It's an epic story. Uh, I tried to find some type of comparisons in history. Uh, uh, if the audience, me and Colonel Collins, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll say Liam, um, have been working on the Battle of Mariupol in general, like the Battle of Kiev that we've done. Go back and listen to the Battle of Kiev, which actually will be a really good kind of starter for this if you didn't hear that podcast go back to the battle of key podcast that a couple of them that we've done and really important go back to the battle of mariupol talk that we did with uh sergeant arseny fedichuk uh from one of the azov fighters but it'll really put it into context this one but they're standalone episodes as well and we're going to talk about a really an unreported underreported at least uh, epic helicopter resupply of those besieged forces during the battle. So it, um, the the boldness of it was epic. And I tried to find some historical examples. I mean, to me, it hints of like the 1945 raid, the Great Raid in the Philippines, where the Sixth Ranger Battalion went into, you know, over 30 miles into Philippine enemy held territory and rescued 500 American POWs, but also even like the, the battle of the Idrang Valley in the Vietnam, 1964 and other amazing helicopter feats of one way missions. Some would say suicidal missions to resupply forces on the ground. And that, and that happened in the Idrang Valley, um, as seen in the movies and things. But I mean, the helicopter pilots of Vietnam, most of them were just surreal characters that could that did the unimaginable with those aircraft. So I can't really find any any historical examples, but uh, we published an article that will be in the the cliff notes about this operation with some, I think, first ever reported in at least English speaking language uh, news media, but just doing the research and you hear and you know, we'll talk about who we interviewed and you, and they're telling you things. And much like my story with the, what I called like the modern day Rambo, but more, even more so Gennady who survived in Mariupol, you almost, you're talking to these guys and, you, and, and I don't know, Liam, if you felt that way, like, like it's almost like, are you serious? Uh, in, in the, in the interviews that we did for this. Yeah, I mean, their stories are almost unbelievable, but then you you look at them and, and analyze the facts and talk to other people and they happen. It's just crazy. Right. 
And I don't know if we want to talk about the, the one interview with the senior intelligence official, which was his own experience and in the photo to prove it happened, but how much that was, uh, yes, it happened <laughs> as much as you might think in interviewing senior intelligence officials currently doing the job and how interesting for us that th those interviews were, but let me set the stage uh, and it's in the article that, that, it, that is out and, and it'll be in the cliff notes about the article, but to, for every, anybody who hasn't been following the war in Ukraine that is ongoing at, at the time of this recording, let's do a, a, a quick summary so that it sets the condition for the need for this this helicopter resupply that happens in the city of Mariupol, Ukraine. So as everybody should know, on February 24th, 2022, Russian President Putin authorized a special military operation, and in his words, to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Uh, in reality, it was a full-scale invasion to overthrow Ukraine. But how it happened, um, and we've analyzed like the Battle of Kiev and others, how that went down. But let, on February 22nd, the bomb started to fall. Hundreds of thousands of Russian forces that were on the borders of Belarus and Ukraine uh, invaded. And they targeted the key cities, actually, which is part of the kind of criticism. If, you, if your mission was to overthrow the, the nation, you might have wanted to wait the decisive operation, but hindsight. But Russia invaded and, and attacked Kiev, Kharkiv, Kherson, Sumy, and other large cities. One of those cities that was the immediate target of the Russian forces was the city of Mariupol. If you don't know Mariupol, which you should at this time, if you haven't heard about the the siege of Azovstal and what the uh, it'll be epic other writings. But the city of Mariupol is a city of at the time about four hundred thousand plus residents. Uh, it's Ukraine's largest port. sits on the Sea of the Azov. You know, it's a it was a critical city in in what the what's called the land bridge for Putin to connect illegally occupied Crimea to Russia through through the illegally occupied Donetsk and Luhansk regions. So it was a part of that land bridge. So on February 24th, it was an immediate target as well as Kiev as this grand plan to invade and take all of Ukraine was enacted. And surprisingly, the speed at which Mariupol was attacked to include surprising to the defenders the Russian forces, um, to include the self-proclaimed Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, advanced on Mariupol from pretty much every direction. But the Russian Navy also did an amphibious landing on February 25th. So basically, the, the, the bombs started far, falling on February 24th. And we've done a couple episodes with first-hand first accounts of what that looked like and what they knew. But... So you basically have forces coming out of the the Hansen in the Donetsk region. You have forces landing from the Sea of the Azov. You have forces coming out of Crimea, advancing through Berdyansk and other areas, all headed to Mariupol. And by February 27th, the forces are, are already engaging the defenders on the outskirts of the city. By March 2nd, really a week into the attack, Russian forces had surrounded Mariupol by land and sea. 
And some people thought that people fell back to the Azovstal, but the Azovstal steel plant, which is this giant plant on the sea of, of the Azov, uh, if you see pictures, you can look at the pictures of it, was always going to be one of the headquarters, like the rear area for the defense of the city. Because the forces in the city, which included the Azov Regiment of the Ukrainian National Guard, the 36th Separate Marine Brigade, Border Guards, and others had worked through what the defense would look like, but the speed of this was also probably unimaginable. And as roughly 20,000 Russian forces attacked the city, what would end up being around three, 3,000 plus, depending on how you count the forces, were progressively uh, attacked and had to fall back just by sheer, uh, not only, the, especially the bombing, I would say carpet bombing of Mariupol by the Russian forces was so, was so ferocious that you ended up having a, a force which was made up of all these elements all under the command of the Azov Regiment Commander, Lieutenant Colonel Denis Prokopinko. I call him Redis, because that's his call sign, Redis. Um, commanding this force that was made up of the 12th National Guard Brigade, the 36th Separate Marine Brigade I talked about, Border Guards, uh, Cord Special Police, kind of like SWAT, um, some elements of the SBU, the Secret Service of Ukraine, and even territorial defenses. And this lieutenant colonel was commanding them all and had pulled back into the Azovstal steel plant and was defending, period. And they were holding out uh, almost, what do you want to call it, the the hot gates of Thermopylae, the Alamo. There's something, you know, there's some analogies here, but they, they all don't fit. But you had all these forces, about 3,000 fighters had fallen back to the Azovstal and the Ilyich, actually, steel plants trying to hold off the Russians. And, and that's pretty much the scene setter. What do you think, Liam? Yeah, the, the thing, only thing I'll add about this, I mean, is it, you know, people might forget now, but when you go back in time, this is like one week into the war, two weeks into the war. They're trying to defend the capital still, right? They're trying to defend all these major, major cities. So there's absolutely no way to reinforce these small number of fighters there. But in terms of strategic position, right? Absolutely, it was a strategic uh, priority to hold on to this as long as possible because 3,000 Ukrainian, you know, a, a mixture of different forces were holding off 20,000 plus Russian soldiers and preventing them from going somewhere else and reinforcing the, the offense into Kiev or into Kharkiv or somewhere else. So even if the city is, is probably lost, trying to hold out as long as possible was extremely strategically important at this stage of the war. That's right. Yeah, you can't ever talk about a single battle without putting it in the context of both the strategic and operational picture, and I agree with you. And that's why, I mean, the Russians tactic, you know, seven major cities, and basically the forced posture of the Ukrainian defensives, um, the Ukrainian military, was what it, what it was. I mean, on February 25th, decisions had been made, and we talked about the Battle of Kiev and how there was one, one uh, brigade there defending the city while others were sent way east and where they thought the Russians um, and a lot of, you know, I don't want to talk about all those pre-decisions that were made, but on February 24th, it is what it is. And yeah. And, and yeah. And so what you're left with is, is, 
you know, we've talked a lot about the, not in this podcast, but everybody knows about the will of the Ukrainian fighters, right? Whether they're volunteers or, or, or their military. Uh, but will can only do so much for you, right? So as this battle continues on, they're running out of ammunition. I mean, out of ammunition, out of medical supplies, right? And they will not have the ability to hold anymore. Uh, and then they can reposition these forces. And this is why uh, Lieutenant, General, uh, Lieutenant General Budinov, the chief of the main director of intelligence under Ukraine's Ministry of Defense, comes up with this bold, audacious plan and when, what some might consider foolhardy to reinforce these desperate defenders because otherwise there's no way they're going to be able to hold no matter how much will they have. Yeah, exactly. And we uh, talked to a couple U.S. helicopter commanders and like just trying to understand the epicness of this. Not only did General Budinov coordinate, and but how he put it together and what was the actual intent of the operation was, you know, it's all like, really? You have a besieged force in a city that is way, so we, sometimes we talk about interior and exterior lines of, line, you know, how do you resupply forces, speed balls, airdrops, air land. But you talk about Mariupol that is deep in what would, at that point, enemy territory were, were attacking and where the other forces were, you weren't going to do a breakout based on everything else that's exploding. All the others were attacked. So how he thought about the, even thinking about doing the operation, but clearly he had to have had known how, like you said, the will of the people, and this is where Ukraine is fighting back, but you have a force and I was curious, you know, as well, like, how are you receiving, how are you prioritizing information? How are you receiving word from all these different cities on what's going on? And now you have this force, incredible force fighting back, but they're running out of ammo because what the ammo they had on hand is what they had on hand, especially in Mariupol. It was hard to contemplate all those decisions, but look, the decision was made to do this helicopter resupply. Yeah, I mean, let's jump to the third and then we can kind of backtrack to the first two. But really, this is a bold, audacious plan, right? 80-minute flights in to the target, 80 minutes out, half of which is going to be over enemy-controlled territory against a well-armed military that has, you know, extremely advanced air defense system. And right, following the old adage, speed is security. So right, flying a low and fast, nap of the earth flight in and out um, to try to avoid those air defense system, but then it's going to put them at the risk of the rocket propelled grenades and weapons, you know, as we all saw the Somalis used to shoot down U S helicopters in Mogadishu in 1993. So let's kind of jump in and, and talk about this, the third mission and Vitaly, the pilot for this first mission. Let's start with the fact it was going to be two lone MI eight transport helicopters, but yeah, let's talk about Vitaly because that, that was the core of the interviews and his story who he was as, you know, as I thought, I, I'll be honest, before we did this interview, I, I thought about our special forces, helicopters, task force, 160 night stalkers, an elite unit of only helicopter pilots who run all the helicopter missions for all of our special operations. And that's why I thought was, was used for this. I had heard about the helicopter resupply. I'd seen the videos. You can look it up. You can Google it. You can see a couple of the videos. It's insane. But who the pilots were, I was like, okay, yeah, they tapped into their most elite pilots and did this crazy mission. And then we talked to Vitaly, but go ahead. Yeah. So his story is probably like any of the other pilots. So it's March 14th. 
you know, a few weeks after the invasion and he's been mobilized. This is not a regular, you know, army pilot. The last time he did anything for the military was flying peacekeeping, you know, missions, flying transport missions during peacekeeping operations in the former Yugoslavia in the 90s. So, right, he hasn't flown military helicopters in decades. He gets activated on March 14th. March 20th, he shows up to airfield outside of Kiev for training. So he's back in a, a military helicopter the first time. And they ask him to fly at night using night vision goggles, which he hasn't done in a very long time. After only four days of training with his co-pilot and flight engineer, he's ordered to fly to an airside air, airfield outside of Dnipro. And, and, and so he asked why Dnipro. And the answer was, they didn't give him an answer, right? They, they just said, you'll find out when you get there. Uh, so the following day, he arrives out on this airfield outside of Dnipro and immediately after landing, asks, you know, again about the mission. And he finally get a response. You're going to Mariupol, right? And so he knows what this means at that point. This is going to be a combat mission against the military, right? That's ranked the second most powerful in the world. And he's got to fly in and fly out with two helicopters. Yeah. So I call that the pucker factor. I can imagine. And he told us like it was nothing like, yeah, they told us Mariupol, let's go. Yeah. And so the following night, they load their helicopter, carefully manifested, right? As anybody that's flown helicopter operations, it's always concerned about weight. What can you go? It's always going to be a trade-off measuring how far you have to fly, how much fuel you, the minimum fuel you need to get home. Uh, in this case, they don't want to have a lot of extra fuel in there because any extra fuel they, they bring, right, is a kind of a safety factor. That means less ammunition, less supplies that they can bring in. So they got the manifest, right, loaded to the ounce, uh, they finished loading up the aircraft on March 27th. Again, five days after he's just started, you know, flying again. Uh, and then after they get it loaded, they decide, hey, based on the reports on the ground, they got to bring in 200 more kilograms of medicine. And so they're looking around, well, we can't cut any of the people that are on the airplane. So the only thing that, and we can't cut any of the payload. So the only thing that they can cut at this point is their weapons from the actual aircraft, right? So they're taking off the aircraft's defensive weapons so that they can bring this um, and so the aircraft would have to fly defensive uh, over that, in, in, which makes it even more risky. Is this was he ended up flying on what would be the third mission, uh, but the second mission, the one that flew just in front of him, had been hit by a surface-to-air uh, rocket uh, that that made it limp back home. Yeah, and I don't. I want to overstress this point. You can imagine two helicopters being loaded, and like you said, if you ever been to like uh, air load planning course. They unbolted the weapons off the helicopter to drop, you know, hundreds of pounds. It's, it's, it's insane. Yeah. And so that, that's, but they figured that was what they needed to do. And as much risk as they were taking to conduct this, they knew that those fighters were at risk every day. They were just, they were going to be extremely, you know, a dangerous mission for that, you know, 80 minute flight in and out. Um, but those soldiers on the ground needed it, so they were willing to make that risk for, for those soldiers on the ground, not unlike what the Night Stalkers and, and other aviators wouldn't do for any troops on the ground in, in the U.S. military. Uh, but I don't remember ever hearing of a story of them taking uh, weapon, you know, the, the aircraft's weapons and ammunition off for a mission into combat. I just don't remember that ever happening anywhere. Right. Or like the Vietnam Hueys that just didn't have weapons on them, but yeah, just kicking stuff out, like, uh, we've got to cut weight. Also, you talked about like there's nobody to cut, right? Because there's there's no other people on on his flight, right? There's him, his co-pilot, and a flight engineer, and then one more person. Let's talk about that one. Yeah, I mean, so one thing, this was an unusual thing. I'm always flying. So as they're trying to figure out, you know, as they're getting briefed on the mission from the intelligence directive, 
they're surprised to find out that they're going to have this intelligence officer with them on board, which that has you know never happened in his military experience. He figured given some of the questions that he asked before and never got answered to him, he wouldn't really ask the question of why you're putting it on there. But he can kind of surmise that there were probably a few number of reasons for this unorthodox move. You know, maybe he was there to gather intel that would be useful for future resupply missions or operational flights. Uh, maybe he was there to deliver intelligence uh, or director directives to, you know, the Mariupol's defenders. Or maybe, and what he probably thought was the uh, most likely is, Maybe by the threat of force, if necessary, and the flight of crew felt like they had to abort the mission, this officer was on board that aircraft, you know, kind of like the uh, uh, Hunt for Red October, right? The old, you know, the old uh, submarine movie, this political officer, this intelligence officer is on the aircraft to make sure that they continue the mission and don't turn around no matter what the risk. And uh, he never knew and never asked, but that's kind of what he surmised it might be, but definitely unorthodox. Yeah, Absolutely. So let's talk about, so the thing's loaded, he's gotten mission briefs, and then there's time to wait for the actual final call, which is not abnormal either. Right. And so it's, yeah, he's just, they, they load, they finally get the word, Hey, they're going to do it tomorrow. Right. That's what they get told. And so they got 24 hours basically of waiting, right. The worst part of any operation, uh, you're just waiting, conducting the final planning, right. They're kind of looking through the planning you know, the air infiltration route based off of the current intelligence of where the enemy's air defense systems are. Uh, and when the local commander states all clear, they knew the mission was a go. Um, but right before takeoff, then they got one final instruction, right? No doubt the, uh, the Ukrainian commander knew this was coming or you know, was going to issue this instruction, but didn't want to issue it any earlier than he had to. And at that time, uh, Vitaly was informed this was not a two helicopter mission. It was two missions with one helicopter each. So, John, do you want to explain what what they meant by that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was an epic. And his memory of it, too, it clearly impacted him. Is Normally, when you find an air mission, if it's two helicopters or three, that's the mission, and, the, and you brief together and everything. So, But by that order, it was clear that no matter what happened to the other helicopter, Vitaly and his crew was on a, was on a mission. So he could not help the other helicopter even if that would be kind of kind of normal protocol, whether it's picking up down personnel, whatever it's like, no, you're on your mission. You have your, your flight path, your landing zone, your return path. You follow that no matter what happens. Right. So all going well, right. They would fly together kind of as a two helicopter mission, but that last instruction was clear, right? If, if one of the helicopters went down, even if you could recover those people, you, you left them in place so you could continue the mission. And that was clear with that final instruction. Now, I also think that that final call, which for me, you know, I'm a ground guy. I'm an urban guy, urban combat. That's why we're talking about this. The, the Battle of Mariupol is so many epic urban defense characteristics in it and how a small force determined fighters can hold ground and make it a really bloody, costly, long fight for the attacker. But the last, that last clearance is directly to Redis, a lieutenant colonel commanding the entire city fight. And I can see him on the ground on some type of communication device looking around going, yeah, it's clear. Oh, it's clear besides the 20,000 Russians that are have surrounded us into this plant. But yeah, it's clear. Go ahead. Yeah. So they had an 80-minute flight to the Azovstal steel plant, 40 of which would be over Ukrainian-controlled territory, 40 of which would be over Russian-controlled territory. Uh, and the first... the first half or first two thirds of that infiltration would be under darkness, right? So this is going to be under night vision goggles and they were going to fly to the sea and then kind of take a left turn at the sea 
and approach the, the steel plant from there. Uh, so, right, of course, tensions, you know, instantly climb when they cross the Russian border uh, and really wouldn't would remain high until they cross back 90 minutes later. So 40 minutes over Russian territory, 10 minutes on the ground, 40 minutes back is what they'd have. Um, and, and as immediately as he's kind of in, flying, as they're infilling over the Russian uh, controlled territory, he sees Russian positions, right? Yeah. And and so his pucker factor is up. He wasn't sure if they were asleep, confused, just at all of a Ukrainian passing helicopter. All, all that mattered to him was that they didn't receive any fly, any fire. Yeah, and let's talk about nap of the earth too, because I don't think all listeners will know what that means. When when a helicopter is flying nap of the earth as a guy who's ridden in helicopters, I don't I didn't like it. It makes you feel sick because the helicopter is going up and down, literally following the the terrain elevations, the trees, the ground, and going up and down. And staying as close, like a gnat, nap of the earth, as to the ground as possible. Right, so you're avoiding the enemy air defense systems, but now you're introducing more risk from the from the troops on the ground with RPGs or other other rockets. Uh, and really, the trees and, and wires become the biggest obstacles. I mean, these are legitimate concerns. And one of the aircraft on the on the second resupply mission that did make it in and out successfully, or it was on the first mission, it actually hit a tree and lost some of its. Uh, wheels underneath it because you know, they're flying so close to, to reduce one risk, but then it incurs another. And he's also pushing the helicopter to go as fast as it can. But I also vividly remember when he said, I could see the Russians on the ground. And you can imagine if he was going a little bit slower, like the Ukrainian pilot and the Russian force on the ground lock, locking eyes. And, the, and I can imagine when he said that too, as again, a, a guy on the ground, the Russian looking up and going, what is that? I don't know what that is. The most they could have done is drop a grenade out the window. That was it. Right. But they're looking at each other and the Russians on the ground. Like, yeah, that's weird. What is that? And and I, I've seen photos. Vitaly sent us photos of his helicopter. It had Ukrainian flags on the side of it and like, I don't know, some type of duck or something like his his uh, his sign. But to be on the ground and going, is that a Ukrainian helicopter? It is it, it, it really vivid for me. And so they're flying in. They 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 get to the uh, the Sea of Azov, and and they take that left turn towards the steel plant. And he knows, hey, there's no way you can miss this giant industrial complex. And then the hard part will just be kind of finding your specific landing spot on there. But as luck would have it, either good or bad, right? As a heavy fog covering the entire coastline, so uh, he starts to worry if he's actually going to be able to see the the steel plant and, and actually be able to land there. And then as he gets closer, it, it starts to kind of break out from this from this fog. But then he has one monster obstacle uh, right on the final approach. There's large power line near the steel plant, 30 to 40 meters in height. And so they have to fly over these power lines, right? Just when they're at the you know most risk, they're going the highest in the sky, doing this you know steep climb and is mo- immediately after clearing the power lines, diving, da- diving down as quick as they can. And at the same time, they're diving down to try to avoid the the, the, the radar, the, the air defense threat. They have to immediately identify that landing spot because every second that they take slowing down, try to identify the landing spot. It means more time on the ground or uh, they'll have less time on the ground to do what they need to be doing. So uh, he said, yeah, Vitaly was so happy when he kind of like saw it, got in there. They identified their landing spot. They don't see a single fighter out there. And as soon as they land, right, it's dawn. And as soon as they land, the, the, the only thing he remembers, he doesn't know where they came from, but he immediately troops come in, immediately just surround the helicopter and just offloading the supplies as fast as they can. Yeah. And frantically, um, to be honest, he said he got out and they actually left the, the engines running, uh, which makes sense. 
although you, you think about fuel consumptions and everything, left the engines running. He gets out because he knew he had, I forget what the time they wanted to be on the ground, like 10 minutes. Yeah, no more than 10 minutes. No more than 10 minutes. And they're frantically offloading the ammo. Like you have a Ukrainian NCO, which I can see too, just yelling at people. Yeah, one of, them, one of the fighters was like, do it faster, do it faster. And Vitaly said, hey, don't worry, don't worry. We're here. We will take everyone because they needed time to load up all the casualties that they were going to take back. Yeah, and I can't imagine that, that human moment, right? You have this guy who's clearly freaking out and stressful. That one, this is just as crazy that the helicopter got there, but Vitaly, who's also dealing with this up and down of stress, gets out and puts a hand on his shoulder and says, man, don't worry, I'll wait, um, despite the stresses. And, and you know that was a human moment between two warriors saying, I got you, I'll, I'll wait for the, you to load the wounded. And there was two reasons, right, why, why time on the ground was, was critical. I mean, one was... The, gives more warning, more chance for the Russian defenders that they overflew to kind of fire at them on the way back. And the second was the careful fuel calculation. Yeah. Right. After seeing these fighters there, right, the frantic offload, seeing them just kind of load casualty after casualty, packing on as many as the, the helicopter would hold, um, he ends up taking off and he looked at his watch. He describes it. I looked at my watch and, and been on the ground 12 minutes, but he would have stayed as long as it took uh, to make it out of there. Right, despite the fact that, that that could likely have caused him to run out of fuel mid-flight. Right, and they take off and they kind of fly, you know, slightly different route going back home. They're not going to go info, infiltrate and exfiltrate on the same route. Uh, but it's daylight at this point, right? Like, we would never do an operation like this in the daylight. Nope. And, and so they're doing this. Only that first kind of two-thirds of the inbound flight was, was, was under darkness. And I kind of felt that he didn't like that, actually. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's almost counter to product counterintuitive to us right who own the night night stalkers things like that i kind of felt when he said that he was able to remove his you know halfway through the insertion able to remove his nods and fly what he was i think more comfortable with in the daylight and and lower himself to the ground and we didn't talk about half the half the path was over the you know, basically the ground but then they hit the sea like you said and then they were flying napa the earth of the sea with like the mist spraying up and everything I can imagine, like for a helicopter pilot, that's stressful as well, but it almost seemed like he was more comfortable in the daylight. But yeah, absolutely, we would never do that. Well, obviously more comfortable in the daylight because he had about five days of refresher training under night vision goggles after not using them in decades. I mean, right. so it, it's just, we, I mean, we put our pilots through months long course and here you go, a five days of refresher training after not flying in decades under, under night vision goggles. Yeah, on the way back too, they they had a different path because on the way back, because of that fuel calculation, there was actually as soon as they crossed the line between Russian and Ukrainian forces, they had a refuel. They didn't go back to where they came from. They went to a refuel point and had to stop and refuel. And you can imagine now he has tens of severely wounded because that was the other part of this was not only the delivery of the vital ammunition and medicine that they needed to survive, but they also had to get those people out who would die, literally die if he had not, this, this mission would not have happened. Right. And so they, they built this in because if they had that, instead of having that forward refuel point, if it would have been, you know, going all the way back to the, uh, the, the takeoff airfield, right. That would have been an extra 40 minutes of flying an extra 40 minutes of fuel that they would have needed. And however many, you know, dozens or hundreds of pounds that it would have taken to fly that, that would have meant less 
medical supplies that they could have brought in, less ammunition they could have yep. brought in. And so this was part of the calculation to absolutely maximize the capability of that aircraft for this mission, realizing they were only sending in two aircraft every two, three, four days, however it was. And they knew they couldn't do this indefinitely. The Russians would eventually learn and do it. Um, and so it was a harrowing mission. John, did you want to talk a little bit about some of the other, the, you know, the, the fighters that they brought in as well? Right. Yeah, I, I absolutely want to talk because that was one of our, again, another surreal interview that we did with um, Ruslan, uh, call sign David, which we'll talk about. But it's just one, remember what's being flown in, which, hey, you got to give Elon credit. Elon credit. One of the first things flown in on the first helicopter mission was the Starlink, which was vital, I think, to the survival of the forces to be able to communicate. And you had a lieutenant colonel in the Azov stall besieged for 80 plus days once they got Starlink and it's in our other interviews able to communicate back directly to the president um, and doing interviews from within the bunkers of the Azovstal steel plant. But and we talk about Vitaly's third mission, but also we know again, because there's an official uh, report, some official reporting in a video put out by the director of intelligence on this mission that they also flew in fighters, volunteer fighters, which you have to respect immensely. Volunteer fighters to go into a besieged city, a besieged plant with 20,000 Russians surrounding it. And they ask, does anybody want to volunteer to be flown in on a one-way mission into Mariupol to help defend it? And we talked to one of those guys, Ruslan uh, Serbov, and he talks about one he had he had been in, in Mariupol and had served in the Azov regiment previously, but he was also he had left, you know, and was serving in other units and was in Kiev when the war started, but happened to see a, te a closed telegram telegram group, probably like a veterans group that that we might you know have like on Facebook or something that says, Hey, does anybody want to we need fighters, we need volunteer fighters to fly into Mariupol? He had already very um, aware of what was going on, been tracking the news, which was international, global news, what was going on in Mariupol. And the dude says, yes, choose me. Right. And so this is probably, you know, mid to late March uh, that this is happening. And so he, 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 he follows the instruction on the group, gets on a train from Kiev to Zaporizhia. Uh, and then he, he meets the Ukrainian intelligence officials there, uh, along with other volunteers. They, they do a quick assessment, kind of write some, some kind of background check. Who's, who's actually capable of going in there and, and being a fighter. Uh, and obviously Ruslan is one of them that they select uh, to go on this secret helicopter mission. Yeah. And he, um, he talks, he kind of like Vitaly he goes to a, a, a place, does a little bit of, of training and then gets, gets told to take a train to a different place. And it happens to be the same place where Vitaly told us about where the Dnipro, where, where the, you know, the medicine, the ammunition was being loaded. And now you have fighters on those helicopters being on a one-way ticket. He talked about the same, he almost told us the same story. Like, Hey, there's only the pilot, the co-pilot flight engineer and Intel officer. And then there's us fighters, some ammo, some medicine. And he, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine it one. Cause it's, it's almost surreal, but talks about the, the, the emotions of the flight. And, and he gave himself a 50, 50 chance of surviving the flight. So he knew how, how, bold even the flight to get into Mariupol was going to be 
And so he he ends up going, he's probably on the fourth or fifth resupply mission on April 5th. Similar kind of prof, you know, flight profile coming in, right? Leaving in the darkness, hitting there in daylight at dawn, and, and and then you know, he never saw the aircraft after it leaves. But let's focus kind of on the, you know, so what happens when he hits the ground, John? Yeah, so he immediately gets assigned, not to like a unit that like his old I think he said he was in, in second battalion or or something, and he gets assigned. So he gets off the ground. And you'd think about like in the movies or even when I had soldiers in our, in a, in, in Iraq, when I was there as a company commander, you see a new guy, new guy gets assigned to, you know, an, an non-commissioned officer gets, you know, there's a process in which you integrate. I mean, at this moment, that's not what happens to Rulon. He gets on the ground, immediately gets scooped up by a unit. And within, within hours is standing guard in a building in the outskirts of the Azovstal watching the Russians move forward to attack. Yeah, so he does what any good soldier would do when they're in a defensive position, right? He's up and he's up on uh, you know a higher level of a, probably a fifth floor of a of a building as he described it, right? He's standing guard up there and he sees this small Russian patrol, you know, of three or four soldiers come out, and so he immediately engaged them with rifle fire, and then you know what? What did the fellow soldiers say to him? So the fellow soldiers told him like, "Don't shoot them, right? You're just giving away our position." Yes, He wasn't told that they were there just for observation because what the Russian tactic was, the Russians would basically just, as, as Ruslan described them, they would use waves of humans as cannon fodder. They would just send these Russians in there so that they could get shot at and killed just to identify the Ukrainian positions. And then once they identified the Ukrainian positions, then bring in artillery or rocket fire on those positions. Which in, in our research is, is the Russian way of urban warfare, actually, as we, we've studied now Mariupol. We heard that from from Arseny. We studied Bakhmut. The Russians will usually, I mean, it's a very Soviet-Stalin tactic of using a human wave to basically be your bullet catchers to identify where the enemy defender in the urban terrain is, and then you you bring in fires to, to target that. And this is different from the U.S. or a Western model, right? If we use scouts or something, we know we're putting them at risk. But the plan isn't from the onset just to have them get shot at and killed, which is what the Russians did. At least that's, you know, as Ruslan described it. And and the evidence would seem to suggest that's actually the case. So, yeah, I mean, so he fought there really from April, you know, from April 5th until May 15th. So this is basically the night before kind of Mariupol was finally ordered to, to surrender you know, by President Zelensky, right? They, they've held out as long as possible. Uh, they accomplished their strategic goal, but they, they just can't do any more resupply missions and resupply it. So look, why don't you talk a little bit about kind of Ruslan's last night, last day? Yeah. And uh, it was really every day. So, you know, I was, you know, as an urban warfare, I'm trying to get into the details. And he's like, well, what day you want to talk about? Because usually, and I think people forget this, that combat is, is usually a lot of boredom. Um, it, you know, I think there's a famous quote that, you know, combat is, you know, mindless hours of boredom punctuated by s- severe chaos and fear or something. I'm misquoting, but it wasn't like that for Ruslan. From that very first night, every day was a high intensity urban fight with massive amounts of firefights daily. But yeah, on, so on that evening. Hey, John, I'll just jump in too. I mean, we, we said from the onset they had about 3,000 fighters, but. You know, the evidence would seem to suggest, you know, not all these 3000 fighters were out there every day. Right. It was really the hardcore ones that were going out every day uh, to fight the Russians. I mean, some were just too scared to to leave the underground bunker. And and so 
the number is probably significantly less than the actual 3,000. And, and Ruslan was one of these that was out there every day. And so the 15th, May 15th, the evening of May 15th was just like all the other days. Yep. And there's a situation which, you know, after he started to tell him like, oh, this sound, this is horrible, where he talks about that the final mission was there was a downed soldier uh, in between like a, a giant pile of ore and railroad tracks in, within the plant. And there his squad gets sent in because they want to save this fellow soldier who's basically in the open at this point. And as the squad moves forward and Ruslan moves forward, this is a, a common enemy tactic. And it's even in saving private Ryan, there's a down guy in the open and you move forward and it's an ambush because they literally wounded the guy so that you would come and try to get him. And as Rulon and his squad moves forward, all hell breaks out heavy machine gun fire and anti-tank weapons are, are unloaded on his squad. Who's trying to, get to this which is a danger area just this wide open area with a wounded soldier and one of those anti-tank weapons that ruslan said was from a matador and i believe him a 90 millimeter round doesn't like blast near him literally hits him and completely severs his leg and he he's like telling that like okay yeah he has a prosthetic so like clearly that's true and he pulls out his phone and shows us like look here's my foot that the soldiers who went you know, the next morning before the surrender went out and took a photo. And it's literally kind of gross actually, but it's Ruslan's half of his leg and his foot sitting in a, on a railroad track. Like, yeah, that's just my foot. Yeah. And, and, and he had his boot there too. Cause yeah. so that was his evidence was like, that's my boot. That's how I know it's my foot. Yeah. And then he had a picture of him. So he was he not only severed his leg and his foot, peppered his entire body, and especially his lower half body was, uh, was shrapnel, as you can imagine. It's an anti-tank weapon meant for, for tanks. Um, and he wakes up in the, what was, we've seen some photos of the gruesome wounded areas of the Azov stall and, and down in the bunkers, they, they had a, they separated civilians and, you know, the fighters and they had an area which was like a field hospital, although one of the field hospitals was struck directly with a bunker buster. You can imagine he wakes up, you know, basically shoulder to shoulder with other severely wounded personnel in immense pain. Um, and he remembers that excruciating pain and one of his fellow soldiers with him. And he asked the soldiers, shoot me. And, and his friend replied, not today. Not today, brother. Not today. And then he's basically in and out of consciousness, right? But remember, right? I mean, they have almost no medical supplies. They're doing amputations without medicine. I mean, despite all these resupply fights, they're going through it faster than they could possibly you know, resupply. And this is, you know, by May 15th, this is well past the last flight. Uh, and, and so they're down to nothing. And then, so the following morning, someone told Ruslan after this, you know, after getting his leg severed and that, that President Zelensky ordered the defenders to surrender and negotiate a deal with the, with the Russians. So, I mean, this is again, one of those cases that happens too much, too often in war, you know, he's only injured hours before this hours. local ceasefire, right? I mean, yeah. as luck would have it. But yeah, he wasn't immediately, I don't think we want to go into it here. I mean, he wasn't immediately turned over no. to the Ukrainians, right? They had to work out the deal. So it took a while. I mean, he was moved to a Russian, you know, a hospital in Donetsk that he said was pretty dilapidated and the, and, and the, and the care he received there was marginally better than what he had in the, in the bunker where he had no medical supplies. So this kind of tells you, you know, how much priority that, that Russians put on medical care, for, you know, in the Ukrainian occupied territory. Right. Uh, but ultimately he was kind of he was returned and, and, and authored a book about his experience 
Yeah, which is in Ukrainian, but I think he's working on making it an English version. It's called Mariupol, the Book of the Brave. And as we were telling him, and I didn't even know until later looking at his book, and he gave me a copy, gave us a copy, that there's something inscribed on the back. Uh, you know, it's something that he says, but he said it to us, and it impacted me greatly when it, both of us just in this cafe in Kiev and all of his story. And, and he basically said, you're a hero, man. And, and, and our translator's like, you're a hero. And he, and he, of course, he's been told that before. You, you could tell there's some, some issues there. And he said, I'm not a hero. All the heroes are dead. I was just lucky. And that, that impacted me. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, just to kind of wrap up, the Ukrainians flew a total, you know, flew missions consisting of about 16 helicopters from what we could gather, you know, delivering over the 30 tons of cargo, up to 72 reinforcement soldiers, evacuated at least 64 critically wounded. They did lose three helicopters during exfiltration. Some were able or, or most or maybe all were able to get back into Ukrainian territory, but all 16 of their helicopters were able to deliver their payloads into Mariupol. Yeah, that's just crazy. I mean, 30 tons of cargo, 72 reinforcement soldiers. I mean, that's a mess near a company of soldiers to help defend that. And this is where we kind of get into our analysis. Like eventually they were told to surrender, although they would not have. And we've had conversations with them. Like some people were upset about that decision, but there was no way they were going to survive and they wanted to fight till the end. But um, as we know now, as Redis and the other commanders from that were, you know, the commanders, the soldiers, there's still many of them being held, which is really one of the reasons why much of the stories haven't gotten out because Russia is still holding hundreds of the Azovstal defenders as prisoners of war and treating them terribly. They, they come back looking uh, awful, but uh, Denise and a bunch of the other commanders, five of them were sent to Turkey and President Zelensky got on a plane and went and got them. It's controversial, et cetera, et cetera. But Denise went immediately back to service and is fighting as we speak. And we talk about like, what did the, like, did the battle of Mariupol matter? And in my opinion, it absolutely mattered, had a strategic impact. As we talk about the 20,000 Russians who thought they would take that city quickly because of these people, because of this mission and these fighters, that city held for 83 days without knowing who it was, you would it would have fallen in just a couple of days. And without a doubt, I mean, if you look, most of Russia's gains were made in the opening weeks of the war, right? So if Russia could have repositioned these 20,000 soldiers somewhere else, Russia would have who knows how many more, you know, square miles or acres of territory under their control right now from these 20,000 soldiers that were just stuck there trying to take a single steel plant. So without a doubt, it was very significant what these fighters did, how critical these resupply missions were. Uh, even two helicopters at a time, that the significant ton, tonnage of supplies that they were bringing in there. Right. I mean, war is a contest of will. None of this would have been possible without the will uh, and the bravery and the tenacity of these pilots, the decision makers, the fighters, all of it. If, if we want to talk one little thing about this kind of compare and contrast to, you know, would the U.S. ever do this? It's doubtful, right? We, we Everything is at night. But the U.S., right, too often we focus on short-term risk, um, narrow short-term risk, right? We would overly focus on the risk to these pilots going in and these crews going in and ignore the longer-term risk of if these 20,000 Russians reposition somewhere else, what is the risk of that? Uh, I can't tell you how many times that I didn't have air support in Afghanistan because we were deathly afraid 
of the Taliban with their massive air defense capability. I'm being a little flippant there, right? They didn't have one. And yet we wouldn't fly aircraft during the day because we were so afraid of them being shot down. And you here you have them sending in you know, pilots that have had five days of refresher training starting off at night into this high-risk operation during the daylight hours, and yet they did it, and it was successful. Yeah, and lastly for me, again, what, what sat with me too, which I found mind-blowing, is that uh, you mentioned it earlier, but I'll, I'll mention it towards since we're wrapping this up, that no pilot flew this mission twice. Just based on the, I guess, the anticipation of what it would do to a pilot to fly a mission, a one-way mission like this, and if they made it out, the country was never going to ask them to do it again. Yeah, that, that stuck with me as well. I mean, we would always have kind of like a lead pilot. That that was the first question we asked you. You were on the third mission. So you were flying the trail aircraft and someone else was flying the lead aircraft that flew on one of the first two missions. He's like, nope. I think they just, the stress was too high. And, and they, you know, 24 hours was about as maximum notice as they want to give them for what the mission was. Because once you flew it once, there was no way you were going to be dumb enough to ever fly that again. It was just too stressful. So that was definitely, you know, stuck with me as well. All right. Well, again, how much of this is surreal, but it's actually real. It happened. It's amazing. It'll go down in history. There are some parallels, but you got to give much respect to this operation into an urban battle that influenced the strategic situation, in my opinion. It definitely the operational, uh, where those Russians could have gone and, and had a, a huge effort in the Ukrainians' ability to, to do what they've done up to this date. Liam, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out MDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.